Okay, so this is a very special episode. I am sitting here with my co-host Kenrick Block for the evening, as well as Johnston Gray and our very good friend Alex Henderson. We all have known each other for a very long time. Johnston and I went to high school together. Kenrick and Alex went to high school together, and we all met each other in film school. And Alex was in the acting program, and Johnston, Kenrick, and I were in the production program, and we all bonded very heavily on our first feature film, Slice written oh and directed by my lovely co-host, Kenrick Block. And I would like to start off this podcast by asking Kenrick if he could give the listeners at home a, a short synopsis of, of our first film together. Um, well, you know, I watched a lot of Michael Mann movies when I was 19 years old, and I fancied myself a genre filmmaker and thankfully had really cool friends that were willing to go on a, I think it was like a nine-month slow, arduous uh, filming experience, and then like another 10 or so months of editing to um, make a pretty um, fun movie that uh, you can't find on the internet anywhere anymore. <laughs> you got rid of it? It's not on your video no. page? It's there. It's just private. If you want a link, I'll send it to you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Hit us up on Twitter, as Johnson would say. <laughs> uh, and did this movie have, the movie that we're about to watch, the movie in question, did this particular movie have any influence in the making of Slice? Um, yeah, I would say, like, massively. Um, the film, he does such a good job of humanizing um, criminals in a way that's like so non-cliche, that's just like so wrought with like the whole cops and robber genre is so wrought with cliche. And, um, you know, our film Slice probably failed that in every regard, but like that was the shining light. That was the beacon. Maybe not every regard, but a lot of regards were on, on my shoulders. I failed it. Um, no, but you guys come on. <laughs> We all had a great time and, and look at us now. <laughs> so the movie we are doing is the Michael Mann classic Heat, which is very exciting because three out of four of these people have seen this movie, love this movie, talk about this movie a lot. And Alex, you've never seen it before, which is I shocking. I've never seen it. Because you were a regular in our household and the fact that we never sat down and watched Heat all together is kind of shocking to me. Johnson and Kenrick, would you agree to that? We failed. We failed you, Alex. We're yeah, so sure. sorry. <laughs> I feel like you guys talked about it so much that I felt like I had seen it. <laughs> I feel like we tried to get you to watch it. <laughs> I was like, I'm good. Yeah. So I just like to hear you guys talk about it. So given the fact that you've heard us talk about it all the time, we'd like to start the podcast by asking our guest, what do you know about the movie? Um, well, I know that it stars Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, obviously. Um, I know it's uh, directed by the great Michael Mann, which is Kenrick's, you know, favorite director. Um, and I know that it's like a crime. It's about crime, probably. Um, and I know that people really like this movie and like to tell me all the time that I need to watch it, which I feel like might be why I haven't seen it, so... Do you mm. think it's it's come to the point that it's like overhyped and you're not going to like it? Well, like I said, like it's so iconic that I feel like I have seen it or I feel like I know what it's about in a way or I've seen movies like that before. Um, but I I'm I'm definitely open to being pleasantly surprised. Okay. All right. 
It came out in 1995. Uh, what was also happening in the world in 1995 was the O.J. Simpson trial, which started and finished that year. eBay was founded. The first PlayStation was released, as well as Windows 95, which is probably the most iconic Windows software of them all. <laughs> the yeah. logo is everything. Brian Eno does that song for Windows 95, and it's worth mentioning because he also has a song on the soundtrack of this movie. Nice. So, yeah. There you go. It's written, produced, and directed by Mr. Michael Mann, who is famous for such movies as Manhunter, Last of the Mohicans, Ali, The Insider, Collateral, Public Enemies, and of course, Heat. And as you know, it stars Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, as well as Val Kilmer, Tom Sizemore, John Voight, Ashley Judd, Amy Brenneman, Natalie Portman, Tom Noonan, Henry Rollins, Danny Trejo, Ted Levine, the list goes on and on. Wow, that's a stacked cast. It's a stacked cast. Would we say this is one of the most stacked casts of the last 30 years? Yes. Absolutely. Isn't like Henry Rollins in like one scene? Yeah. Yeah, there's some people where you're just like, that guy's in this movie? And it's a lot. Hank Azaria. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) The ultimate that guy. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, Apu from The Simpsons and and, uh, Jeremy Piven as well. Oh yeah, That's Jeremy right. Piven's in it. Ari Gold. Without hair. Yeah. The pre-hair Piven. Wow. It's a very eclectic cast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's an eclectic movie. It's a... Uh, it's also... The, yeah. like, I never expect those people to be in a movie together, so that's... <laughs> You're not <right>. wrong. <laughs> Any of them, really. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's it's quite a stretch. Natalie, really young Natalie Portman. This is only her second feature film. She's super, super young in it. Is this right after Leon? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the story of Heat, it was originally a remake of an unproduced TV series that he'd worked on. Um, the pilot was aired, and then it was taken and made into a TV movie called L.A. Takedown in 1989. I looked for the footage online and I found a couple of scenes, one of them being like the, the bank robbery scene, which you guys know what I mean by that, the two of you. And it looks like Spoilers. something, it looks like something we filmed in film school. It is such a piece of shit. It's a B-side to slice, yeah. It, yeah, I was like, is this slice? No, it's not in black and white. Um, but yeah, like Michael Mann tried to get this off the ground for a really long time. He wrote the first draft in 79 and then he rewrote it in 81 and offered it to the director Walter Hill, who had uh, previously directed uh, 48 Hours and The Warriors. Uh, but he passed and then it got shelved again and then it got passed around. And then finally in 94, he decided he, Michael Mann was working on a James Dean biopic and got the opportunity to make Heat. So he dropped everything to make this movie. I would say mm. that this is his passion project movie. Can you know more about his kind of like history than I do but yeah no this uh I think you nailed it it's his passion project he um is like a Chicago-based man like he like still lives there I believe and he knew the real life um police officer that uh, Pacino's character is based off of and they were like friends and like through conversations I believe uh that's where like this concept came from Chuck Adamson is his name and he is uh the whole of public enemies is dedicated to him Oh, cool. At the very end of the title of the ending credits, it says in memory to Chuck Adamson, who died of lung cancer the year before the movie came out. Uh-huh. Yeah. So do we want to talk about some technical stuff, Kenner? Or do you want to wait till after because you don't want to spoil anything? I, I 
think, yeah, I, the one thing I will say in my notes here is, and I have never found any verification for this. This is just one of my hunches, but I think there's one digital shot in this movie. Um, it's either digital or it was shot on VHS or like some weird beta cam or um, maybe Super 8, but it does not look like film. The rest of the movie is shot on 35mm anamorphic. There is some stuff with like a thermal camera that's obviously not film, but it's not those shots. I just want you to keep an eye out. There's one shot in the movie. It's in the third act. Um, it's probably like 10 frames long. It's not a long shot. Uh, if any of you can find it, I will give you brownie points and we can talk more about it afterwards. But I Ooh. think that feeds nicely oh, into, you know, Michael Mann was a very early adopter for digital cinema and for like a decade was kind of like critiqued and now like, almost all movies are shot digitally. Um, so he was kind of a pioneer and I'm pretty sure, I'm gonna keep my eye out. I remember seeing this movie uh, actually in theaters on a 35 mil print. Were any of you guys there? I feel like I was. I feel like you were too. I was like, I don't think I went alone. Um, and I don't see <laughs> these other people, though. so. <laughs> Sounds like a good time there, guys. Uh, <laughs> sorry, John. Um, well, go. <laughs> <laughs> the invites in the mail, man. Um, yeah, you'll get it. <laughs> it was like five years ago. It was the only time I've ever seen this movie on film. And it's stunning. But that one shot stuck out like even more uh, to me. I was like, oh, that's definitely not shot on the same camera as the rest of the movie. Interesting. Um, yeah. So that's my only kind of nerdy tech point to throw out now, I'd say. I love it. So Alex, like, why? Like, this is a question we always ask as well, which is why haven't you seen the movie? And you can say that it's just like you never felt like it. But is that truly it? Or was there something else stopping you from never sitting down to watch it? Do you have an interest in even watching it? No, I, I am interested in watching it with you guys and just disseminating it. Um, but I would say like, it's not the type of movie that I typically gravitate towards. Um, yeah, the subject, I've seen a couple of Michael Mann's movies and like, I understand why they're like good, but they're, they don't really like speak to me in the way that they speak to Kenrick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, yeah, I guess, and I just, I think for years I thought I had seen it. Like, again, it's just like, it has this icon status. It's just, you know, it's like permeated pop culture in like such a way that I just feel like, I felt like I didn't need to see it. Uh, Kenrick, when is the first time you saw this movie? Um, I think it was probably like 1998. I think it was like eight years old. I have a very visceral memory of the case because it was like right when DVDs came out. Um, maybe it was 99, 2000, but like uh, my dad like got a DVD player and everyone's like, what is this? And no new movies were released on that format. So they were just like mining kind of like modern classics and I can like still smell that cardboard like leaflet style like with the plastic clip on the side and it's like blue and I think it has a picture of the train station like out of focus in the city and it's just like this white kind of like knockoff um, typewriter looking text and it's just like heat Kilmer or Pacino De Niro Kilmer yeah. and uh, I've watched that DVD so many freaking times in my life um, but yeah it must have been when I was quite young. And what about you, John? I think it was first year of film school. I don't think I saw it until I moved into the house of Block. And 
It's like, welcome. <laughs> um, we're watching a movie this evening. <laughs> Throw your shit in the corner. We'll deal with that later. <laughs> yeah. Like, here's a lease, but we can we can throw it out. <laughs> yeah, but you have to watch Love Exposure with me. Yeah. <laughs> There's a couple conditions on this lease. <laughs> yeah. They're all long movies. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's not as long as Love Exposure. I think we all watched that together, did we not? Yeah, and it was so good, and it I'm was- so glad that you made us watch it. Honestly, I really, I really am. I am too. You're the best. I just rewatched that the other day, and I, it's still great. Still holds up. Wow. Um, and John, have you seen it more than once since that one time? Um, I've seen it probably. I think like I have seen it um probably like five or six times, and I think it was all in the house. I think it was just like whenever <laughs> we didn't know what to watch, it was like let's watch Heat. <laughs> Kendrick is a fan. It's one of those movies that you can throw on, like, I feel at at any time. Like, it's one of those ones that you can, if you've seen it, you can kind of, like, dip in and you're like, okay, yes, I know where we're at now. Like, I can take it from here. Or, like, okay, we're coming up to the bank high scene or whatever. Or, um, yeah, like, it's just got, it's kind of like, you know, and there's lots of those movies that you can kind of just, like, dip in and out of. um, And you don't need to have, like, seen the whole experience. But I think Heat is definitely one of those ones. Yeah, oh, for sure. One of my... I tried on a few things as practices to get myself psyched up for like social engagements, like for opening nights and stuff like that, where I had to be like really on. And for about a year, I just watched the bank heist scene to like get my adrenaline going and just being like (laughs) methodical and meticulous of like what I was going to do at the party. Um, It's not, not a terrible solution. Certainly not the best. It certainly came in really hot, but (laughs) Everybody uh, get on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. All right. So the budget for this film was $60 million and it grossed $187.4 million. So just such a success. Uh, it was marketed as the first time Pacino and De Niro were in a scene together. They had previously been in Godfather 2, but they were never on screen at the same time. So this was like the producer's like marketing genius fee. It's like the first time they're actually together. Um, and they were both really excited when the, when the project was approached to both of them. They said yes immediately. They got the characters they wanted. They were in from the ground floor. Um, Do you remember when they did another De Niro and Pacino like movie recently? It was like a couple of years ago and they're like, they're back. And it was trying to be like... <gasps> remember heat it's back but it was so bad it was such a letdown but that was like their whole the whole selling point was that it was Pacino and De Niro back together again you remember heat now it's lukewarm (laughs) (laughs) oh god (laughs) was it called righteous kill yeah. Oh no! Well, they're in the and they're in the Irishman together too, right? Okay, they well, both obviously in? not the Irishman. <laughs> yeah, I think that it was. <laughs> okay. It's like, you remember what was it called? Righteous Kill. Well, they're back together again, again. <laughs> the Irishman. <laughs> Good times. Um, it has an eighty-seven percent rating approval on Rotten Tomatoes, and it's got it has mostly positive reviews. out of 4 stars from Roger Ebert. Everyone really, really loves this movie. A lot of people cite this movie as inspiration for their own works, including Nolan with The Dark Knight. Um, It also had a very heavy influence on the Grand Theft Auto video game series, which makes sense once you've seen the movie. Um, And it also had real-life influence on certain criminals and bank robbers, and a lot of people have used this as inspiration uh, for the crimes that they commit. Which is not great, but uh, 
one time at a film festival, a French gangster approached Michael Mann and told him that he was his technical director um, because he took everything that he, that he learned from Heat and put it into real life. So it's an influential movie, to say the least. Um, take it That's a true life. fan right there. True fan. Uh, 1995, again, was quite a huge year for movies. Uh, I'm going to list off what the biggest movies were, which is kind of, I, I did not know this about 95, but uh, we've got Die Hard with a Vengeance, Toy Story, Apollo 13, GoldenEye, Waterworld, Casino, Clueless, uh, Usual Suspects, Babe, uh, <laughs> Jumanji, Empire Records, Billy Madison, Seven, Pocahontas, Batman Forever, and Braveheart, which won the best picture of the year that year. Braveheart won best picture? It sure did. I re- I recently rewatched that movie. It is not very good. <laughs> <laughs> that was my sister's favorite movie when we were growing up. I don't know why. <laughs> weird favorite movie to yeah, have, yeah for sure that and Dances with Wolves. She had really weird, bizarre taste in movies. She's um, one of those dramas, man. Where's Last of the Mohicans in her list? <laughs> <laughs> number three. Number three. Ah. <laughs> Um, so Alex, as you know, like Michael Mann is a huge director. It's got a huge cast. Can you guess how many Oscar nominations this movie got? Uh, well, this is big, big year for films, obviously. And with Braveheart in the running, um, <laughs> I, I'm going to guess like three. Good guess. It got none. It was shot out of the Academy completely and is to okay. this day one of the biggest shocks, laughable snubs that the industry or some people think that the industry has ever seen um, because it is such a good movie. It's on almost everybody's top 10 list of best films of 95 and it got absolutely no love from the Academy whatsoever. I don't want to really delve into as to why anyone thinks that is because again, I think that'll be better once you've seen the movie. Um, um, just to like talk about it in terms of like breaking it down, but that's about it that I have for pre notes. Do you have any questions? No, <laughs> no, not really. Um, okay. you covered it, yeah. Great, buckle up, buckos. It's gonna be wild. I'm so stoked. <laughs> I'm actually a bit nervous because what if I <laughs> What if I don't like it like you guys like it? And then don't lie, don't don't lie to That's us. It'll, groovy, yeah. yeah, it'll be a we won't we won't fight you. <laughs> like, what if I get bored? Well, you have to stick it out. That's the commitment to the podcast. <laughs> okay. But you can say that you got bored and stopped paying attention. You know what? I think this is actually why I never watched it. It's too much pressure. It's a lot of pressure. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> a couple friendships are on the line here. Yeah, yeah. it's not boring. I, I promise. You, even if you don't like it, you won't find it boring. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. And we're back. We're back. We're back. So, um, 
how how do you feel about the movie um i really liked it yeah it was really good <laughs> thank god <laughs> we can I, yeah, be I'm friends glad still it. yeah I'm, I'm, I'm glad you guys made me watch it it's the... <laughs> i was thinking about it when i was watching it this time because like i like what you were saying before i totally um related to of being like i've heard about it so much i feel like i've watched it it's a classic staple even though i've never seen it like it just feels like i it's something that i've seen and so i was trying to look at this movie through the like lens of never seeing it before after all of that stuff happening happening and i was i was questioning if i would like it at mm. this stage really? of the game i mean i don't know if i would i i like i'm with i think it was you ken who was saying you saw it at a pretty young age like this yes. was like i like cabin movie at my like parents cabin in whistler so i saw this movie like yeah when i was like seven and saw it every year four or five times wow then. um so i just like this movie just makes sense to me and it's like a comfort movie to watch in a weird way because i just know it so well mm-hmm. but i was i was uncertain if i would like it now or like love it now i guess and did you Good question. I mean, oh my god yeah i love this movie yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, it, it it holds up, eh? It's it totally does. Every time. Yeah, I took a, a while to watch it because I had I rewinded a couple parts just um to make sure I, you know, was taking it all in. Um, it was a enjoy. It, it was definitely long. It's definitely a long <laughs> movie. <laughs> I mean, it's three hours. Um, and there was like definitely a couple points where I was, you know, felt like a little bit bored, but. <laughs> Do you remember them? Um, not particularly. I think it was. The, I think the thing that I didn't that surprised me about this movie was just like how introspective it is. Um, obviously, there's like these incredible like action sequences, and I was kind of expecting a lot more of that. And I was quite pleasantly surprised at like how many like quiet moments there were and um how much sort like sort of character development and you know talking there was um and then there there would be like these amazing shootout scenes that but that's actually a pretty small part of the movie totally so yeah. it's it's a strangely like meditative film and yeah, I think when you go into it, you think, oh, it's the bank robbery movie. And like the bank robbery doesn't happen until like an hour and a half, two hours into the movie. And there's really just the one. Mm-hmm. There's like the van robbery at the beginning. Yes. Which is like super intense. Like it, it sets the tone, but. Yes. And then yeah. honestly, most of it is like relationships and, and people talking in rooms and people quietly looking out on the ocean or like um, meditatively like thinking. And I think that stuff gives those huge beats of action some real uh, weight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the fact that it, it kicks off with that scene of the armed car robbery. So I was like, oh, okay, like this is what this movie is gonna be like. It's gonna be like this for the whole time. And then it, it really slows down and it takes its time telling the story. Uh, which I really appreciated. So, I mean, it, it is a long running time, but I didn't really feel like there was stuff in there that didn't need to be there, you know? I, I agree. I would argue, and like, okay, this is, and maybe it's just like <laughs> that it's triggering to me, so I don't like to watch it, but I don't necessarily know that the Natalie Portman suicide scene 
I always forget that it's coming. And then I'm like, oh, because you're like 220 into the movie at that point. And it does kind of give closure to Pacino and his soon-to-be ex-wife's relationship, I guess. But it's just like another traumatic, upsetting event that happens that really doesn't lead the story anywhere. Prove me wrong, but that's how I feel about it. I mean, I found that scene, I was not expecting that at all. And I was like, I found it pretty shocking. And yeah, I thought it was pretty upsetting um, to watch. (sighs) But I I don't know if there was like enough buildup to it or something. Like we sort of barely see the Natalie Portman character and she's kind of like upset because her dad, her her real dad sucks. And she's uh, obviously like, you know, going through some angst, but I... I don't feel like I really knew that character well enough to really feel the full impact. And that's how I felt about it, at least this time around too, is that when he gets her to the hospital and he's explaining exactly what the paramedics or like the nurses need to do. And he's like, he's looked at her body and then like, she's cut almost every artery, get the crash cart, get this, this, and this. It is a huge moment for his character, but I don't think it should have been at the expense of a young girl. Yeah, I do feel like she kind of, that character kind of served that purpose of, like, making you really care about Al Pacino's character in a way that I didn't before that moment. Yeah. Um, and it happens really late in the movie, which is an interesting choice. Like, I, I, I don't know, because up until that point, I just didn't really feel that and feel very invested in his character whatsoever. Yeah, I, I, I think that's really fair. I think it's... Um... I know that they tried to cut it um, in earlier like editing versions of it. And I think it is a bit of a cheat. I think it causes you to really understand like um, what he's willing to sacrifice for um, taking down De Niro's character, um, Neil. But like, it is a little bit of a cheat in the sense that it's such a heavy, important thing. And it's treated as like a really quick scene and oddly, I don't know. I'm I'm conflicted on it because I think the bathroom scene is kind of fucking incredible when he's like got her and he like keeps pulling the towels down from behind his head. Like just from a performance point of view, I think it's astounding. Um, but it really the reason why it's there is so that they can have this, he, he can have that scene with his soon to be ex-wife where she says like, go after him. Um, like, and he's willing to stay and, and she's like, you have to go and hunt, hunt the guy because this is what you do. So yeah, it's it's not perfect, but um, it is a bit of a way for us to really care for him in that final act. Yeah, like I shouldn't I shouldn't have said that it is unnecessary. I think that it just like it would be a different movie if it wasn't in there, or he would be a different character if it wasn't in there. Totally, but it just doesn't like on a personal level. I'm like, don't if you're gonna talk about suicide, like treat it gently and like treat it with respect don't just throw it in there as like a shock for like the main character to have to like deal with in 10 seconds and then we get no follow through like she's gonna be okay but like is she gonna be okay like more like nothing's resolved for her no and that's really sad yeah and yeah i agree it's it's a little awkward because it is dealing with something that's really heavy and real and like kind of a manipulative way um and there's a few of those in this film that stood out to me this time more so than ever. Um, there's so much like 
machismo in the movie. Um, and I think man actually de- like holds a lot of space for his female characters, but like the nineties, the era doesn't. Yes. And that I found super conflicting. Like early on when fucking Val Kilmer just starts throwing shit in his yeah. like living room and you're like, dude, you're a fucking asshole. Like it takes like a while for me to get over that and see the more endearing parts of his character because it's so normalized that these men just like kind of treat these women like shit. And there's another scene in, um, in Neil's apartment where, um, uh, is it Chris? Val Kilmer's character's name is Chris. Yeah. He's not sleeping on the floor and they're talking about, you know, and he's like, do you have any like side relationships? And Chris is like, nothing serious. And he's like, is she cheating on you? And he's like, no, no. And it's like, treated like this horrible thing if she's cheating on him but not if he's cheating on her and that did not age well for me yeah i i for me like i kind of definitely that point in the movie with val kilmer's character and how he treats his wife and i was a bit like not this again because i just feel (laughs) like crime movies and mob movies like the female characters are like relegated to this trope of like the long suffering wife or mistress and I was just like <sighs> like I, I I wish that I do feel like the female characters like as the movie went on I do feel like the female characters were more fleshed out than in other movies like this and some of the female characters actually did have some semblance of agency um so yeah, as the movie went on, I felt a bit better about it. But like with that's just kind of like a trope of the genre, though. Like the female it characters is. are often disposable and they're used to advance, you know, the male characters. Yeah, and I, I think there's moments where, um, and sometimes it's just like a shot, like um, like at sort of the like third act when um, fuck, I can't remember her character name, which is making it even worse. But like when um, when Val Kilmer's wife like gives I, the like I'll hand. just call her Ashley Judd because yeah. Ashley <laughs> Judd yeah um there there's a scene where it holds on Ashley Judd's face and she's like it wasn't him and she's sitting on the couch um kind of like looking off at her son and and the cop is like I'll get you some coffee if you want some coffee and like you see her like want to break down into tears because she knows she's like never gonna see him again Um, And the length at which the film holds on her, like, breaks all of the paradigms of, like, a silly genre movie where female characters aren't given that space. That moment. And and that moment. So, like, in a way, it's like, wow, this is huge. But there's so many flumps, too, that are unfortunately just cliche. Um, So the movie kind of fucks with me in that regard. I mean, I also think, like, I'm sure it is cliche with, the De Niro, Amy Brenneman storyline where like she unknowing, unknowingly falls in love with a gangster or a criminal or whatever you want to call him. Um, but he does really love her. Right. And you see that again. I just rewatched the town in preparation for this. Cause I wanted to like, I would say that the town is like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like the next movie, like this movie that totally. was like as, as big as it was. And that, trope is introduced as well but it's done in like such a like less endearing way i find maybe it's just that i i i feel i don't know just like a more personal response to de niro's character and de niro's performance than i do to ben affleck which is not shocking no <laughs> <laughs> but i think that like like that that scene when it's 
when they're all at dinner together and he's looking around the table and everyone's coupled up and he's alone yes. and you see that loneliness in his eyes and then he calls her and she's like I never thought you would call me again I thought it was like a one night stand and then they really like try to form a relationship and then to the point that she even agrees to run away with him knowing everything that she does and the yes. only thing that stops that happening is that you know he gets caught and has to run without her or else like he is essentially saving her yeah I think in I think in a in a more traditional gangster movie, he would be saving her. And I think in this movie, she's saving him mm. um, in kind of a funny way is like, she's finally giving him an excuse to leave the only thing that he's good at and feels like capable at, but knows that it's like not going to last because he's going to get caught and killed. Um, Cause he's not willing to go back to prison, but like her character is fucking phenomenal. And um, like all the way through, I feel like has so much consistency and is treated with like so much reverence. Yes. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I really, really like, I've, I also want to say, I think the performances in, in this movie are all fantastic. Um, and then Amy, Amy Brennerman is no exception. I, I mean, I think I found her character a little bit one note, just it's like, oh, she's so sweet she's so sweet kind of thing. And like, she's just this sweetheart who's like there for him and loves him. Poor, what was her name? Edie? Edie. Poor Edie. She just wanted to be a graphic designer <laughs> and work in the bookstore. <laughs> she could have had such a nice life. <laughs> That's true. I think that she went on to though, you know, a couple years of therapy and she's back on her feet. <laughs> yeah, she, she was, she became a judge. Yes, she did. <laughs> Judge... Judging Amy in 90s Judge... classic. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I think, yeah, like I do, I'm not sure which one of you said this, but I think that this movie is based on relationships. Like that's like the foundation of this movie. And I think that it's solidified in the last moment of the film after Pacino shoots De Niro and then they hold hands and you're like that was beautiful like that was beautiful and it like it kind of sounds like it could be cheesy like them like holding hands and like looking off while De Niro dies but it like it really touched me yeah like if you read that in a script you'd be like no (laughs) no if if you read it in a script it was like they hold hands and then Moby plays yeah (laughs) like are you it was Moby It, it was Moby it and was beautiful, though. It works. It, was, it, it worked so, so well. well. That that whole like final scene, because like I, for some reason, had it in my head that there was like another shootout, and it was a shootout. I guess like it was more of like a cat and mouse sort of game. Totally. The fact that it was in that location under the tarmac, and so you get this like moving light sensation, which is so fucking cool. And, like, I don't know why all of those, um, like, shipping containers were painted in a checkered way. I guess it's, like, an airline thing. I don't know. <laughs> but it, was like, it was aesthetically pleasing. And I loved that ending. So I forgot that it ends on such a calm note and such a, like, moment of, like, closure again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's stunning. And, like, I, I was kind of struck before, but, like, I was struck, like, this movie starts with a train like it's like in a train yard and like he comes in on a train and when you think of LA like the last mode of transport you think about is train yeah 
Hmm. Like it, it, and you, you think of airports and you think of airplane. And of course it feels so um, like a beautiful kind of like mirror of the beginning where it's like the silent train rolls in and he comes out and they do the heist. And it's like, he dies in this like airport um, shipping yard. Um, But like something about, about how, how man like captures these sort of like ways that people enter and, 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 and exit the city is so, it, again, should be cliche. And I think this movie's filled with things that have like their own mythos and kind of weight to them. Um, mm-hmm. But then they're kind of breathe this new life and it takes the cliche and sort of the power of the myth and then like grounds it in, in something that feels real, even though there's nothing real about the movie. Like it's such a romantic movie. And I think all of Michael Mann's movies are just steeped in romanticism. Like when I'm I, I have like this document where I texted myself all my favorite quotes of the movie and like none of, like no one talks like this. Like, <laughs> like, like give me all who? you got. <laughs> <laughs> give me all you got. Or like who, who, what am I, a fucking owl? Yeah, like, that's the best line. <laughs> there's like, there's like a million of them. It's a, like, she's got a great ass and your head oh. all the way up it. None I mean, of- <laughs> Al Pacino is on a different fucking planet <laughs> in this movie. He is so Pacino-y in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and watching this movie, I was like, okay, is Al Pacino a good actor or is he just nuts? <laughs> I think he can be. I don't know that he is in this movie. I think that... Oh, how dare you? I think he's a good actor. I think that, but I think that there was a lot of like character intention from him and like him being like, this is how this character is going to do it. And if man were to be like, maybe dial it back, Pacino would not be into that at all. <laughs> Which brings us to a fun fact that Kenrick found about... Uh, there's a fantastic uh, Q&A with like a huge part of the production team and the cast um, that was done 20 years later. And Chris Nolan um, is curating the Q&A, which makes sense because his entire career is based off of stealing from Michael and Michael Mann. But... Um, yeah. Yeah, nonetheless... It's so true, though. I, I so could true. not stop I thinking mean, that. I don't even know why I defended him. I hate this for <laughs> <laughs> That that beginnings that scene with the armed car robbery reminded me so night. much. It's, it is, yeah, it's, it's exactly like night. completely yeah. the dark night. And I was like, D- does everybody? Do people know about this? Like, <laughs> do people who love Chris Nolan know like, that he stole all this? Like, like, shot like, for shot, yeah. Hmm. Anyways, it's crazy. Like his, his color palette in his movies, the way he uses music. Like he, he also he, uses that 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 guy. He's the the number one that guy of this movie, but he's the guy who doesn't who does the false drop with De Niro who De Niro ends up killing oh, while yeah. he's watching hockey he's the bank manager in the beginning of the dark knight so like <laughs> yeah he's just stealing shit from man left right and center and people are like he's such a genius anyways i could go on and on <laughs> but um what was my point oh yeah so uh so pacino and and man had sort of decided for for pacino's character that he was doing coke like throughout the movie but they felt that it was like way too cliche to have these scenes of like a cop doing cocaine. Um, so there's just scenes where he has been, he basically looks at man and is like, am I like on drugs right now? And man's like, yeah, you're like totally hopped up right now. So I feel like with that in context and it took 20 years after the movie for either of them to admit it, like you can at least go, this is like an 11 out of, and it was supposed to be like a five, but like, he did have intention. He intended to do something here. 
Okay. Yeah. I think that he does a good job. I think that his performance is like exactly though how Alex said is like, it's very Pacino-y in the sense like, I've never seen Scent of a Woman, which is presumably his best performance. Never seen, never seen it either. Let's never did, see it, guys. Yeah. <laughs> but if you've seen some sort of gangster movie, he's that guy. And like, you don't get a lot of range from him. Whereas like, De Niro is very much De Niro in this movie, but he has like a softness to him that I buy into. Whereas like totally I, and and there is that one scene to come back to it when he's in the hospital and he's like taking charge of what they should do with Natalie Portman where I'm like I have something in here for you but it's like a two minute scene and then it's gone again like I, I, I totally agree but there there I I think like the things that are remembered are the scenes where he's just going crazy but yeah. I think there are these incredible scenes like that scene in the hospital where he's taking charge. Um, and even there's a, a, an amazing, and he kind of yells for like one second in it. So he sort of becomes Pacino-y, but at, when they're in like sort of the um, FBI office and he's like, he's gone, he's gone, like bon voyage, motherfucker. Um, I'm going to go sleep for a month. I'm going to go to the hotel and I'm going to sleep for a month. Like there's these scenes where he's so, even after when he shoots Tom Sizemore, um, when he like takes the gun down and he's just breathing, like there's these moments where he's so fucking subtle mm -hmm. and maybe they stand out even more because they're like silence in this like tornado of him saying all these absurd lines and shaking tables and being Pacino um versus De Niro who is like so realistic and um you know like I feel like De Niro's greatest scene in that whole movie is when they're driving at the end to the airport yeah like I've watched this movie I don't even know how many times and I thought that I'd been desensitized to it and he's they're driving to the airport and John Voigt's like, you're home free. And he's like, we're home free. Like, be safe, take care. And you watch him. He's smiling. He's with the woman he loves. They're going to get away. And then you see the smile like drain out of his face. And he looks off in the distance and he's like, but Wayne Grow like fucked me and I'm fucking mad. And then he takes the off ramp. And every, every time I watch this movie, I go, don't do it. Yeah, it's like, you were Please. so close. <laughs> but like, who are you rooting for in this movie? Are you rooting for Pacino or are you rooting for De Niro? I don't think I was rooting for, for either of them, to be honest. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Like, like, I think like the only villain, like Wayne Grow is like the only... And oh, also, can we talk about the scene where he kills... A sex worker, and then it's and then just it's never, never brought up again. Yeah, I really wanted to talk about that too. <laughs> yeah, that was awkward. Like that was uncomfortable. I feel like that wouldn't fly today. Um, uh, but yeah, he's obviously like this total psychopath, or um, he's he's very villainous. But we also don't really get to know him that well either. Um, I don't know. What did you think about? Wayne Grow, like that well, character. He's the problem child from the very beginning because he's the new guy on the armed truck case. And he's like, oh, if like this all goes according, like if this all goes well, like I'm going to join you guys and whatever. And he's the hothead who starts shooting the security guards, which no one had the plan for. And then he goes off, kills a sex worker. And that's when I was like, oh, right, there's a murder mystery component to this because they follow it for a minute and then it's just completely dropped. Yeah. And I don't really get why. Like, was it just to show that he was a bad what bad he's man? capable of and like how he's this 
bad person who is not to be trusted like yeah it's the biggest problem in the movie um the only thing that i think i don't know i I don't know i can't defend it because i think it's the biggest flaw in the movie I, i think that the most interesting and important scene that comes from it is when her mother comes to the crime scene and pacino embraces her like that scene um and and tries to pull her back from like seeing her dead daughter um, but, but again that's just another like it is a woman who's fallen victim yeah just to make al pacino look like a good guy yeah 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 exactly. yeah i i totally agree it's super manipulative um from like a filmmaking point of view and it just informs us that like pacino has had to endure these like horrible things and that he's trying to keep like um his wife and this this poor woman whose daughter has been murdered um what like he refers in in one scene um this like crackhead putting their baby in a microwave like it it does use these kind of like really fucked up things to uh try to humanize his character and and so that you understand why he's making these like sort of harsh um flawed decisions and I, i think it is flawed it's manipulative and uh not totally necessary like it 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 makes Wayne grow into the super villain when like you already know right from the beginning when he kills the the armed car guards you're like this is a bad guy and you start to separate him from like Neil because like Neil is mad that he did that and um yeah I I don't I don't think it's totally defendable well they also say when they're looking at the body of the sex worker like they say something like like this oh this is like the third like however many we found like this the head whatever it is yeah so like it's like he has done this before is that what we're supposed to learn from that yeah yeah and then he just gets shot in a hotel room really really quickly very anticlimactic yeah um i i think again it's almost a cheat for trying to make neil into a likable uh antagonist because like it's he weird kills because the really bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And but he doesn't even know about that stuff. Right. Like that's the weird cheat about it all is like that's not earned. Like he kills the guy because he wronged him um and fucked his friends over and got his friends killed ultimately, but like that whole side plot where he's like murdering um sex workers is just for us to be like he got the villain. Uh yeah. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But to your to your point, which I think is a great question, is like, who are you rooting for? I think that's what makes the movie work so well, is you're kind of rooting for both of them, as far as Pacino and De Niro. So you're rooting for both of them, but I was rooting for none of them. I'm rooting for, <laughs> and I'm rooting for De Niro. <laughs> <laughs> which I know is problematic because he's a bad person, but like laid it all on the table and like he's wanting, he wants to get out. Like he's the one who wants to get out and, and live his life regardless of the fact that he's done these terrible things. But he's so likable and, and sexy. I think it might be my favorite. He's so sexy. Why is he so sexy in this movie? Yeah. Like he's sexier in this movie than he is in like Taxi Driver. He's so sexy. This is peak De Niro sexy. It's and I love Casino and the fact that this this Which and Casino were the same year. year yeah. I'm like, man, he seems like 20 years older in Casino. He doesn't seem sexy to me at all. And in this movie, I'm like, he is so sexy and dynamic. Um, and I think the movie is rooting for him too because the movie literally starts with him, mm-hmm. and he's starting his life. Like he's 
uh, he's like ready to leave this thing that he is the only thing he's good at, according to his own words, and like go with the woman of his dreams and just like leave it all behind versus Pacino is his life is falling apart. Like he has nothing else but chasing the sky. And I think if the movie works, you're still rooting for Pacino, but anybody who's like, I'm not rooting for Pacino, I totally get it because he's just not as sexy and as interesting as as Neil. Like, I'm happy that Pacino is the one who lives at the end, I guess. And like, and... (laughs) (laughs) I I want De Niro to weirdly succeed. I want De Niro to get away. And that's what I mean by succeed. Like I want him to get on the plane with Amy Brenneman and go live his life happily. It makes the whole movie work. Yeah. Actually, now that I think of it at that end scene, I was, I didn't, I wanted Pacino to be the one to get shot or neither of them. I kind of thought that neither of them would would kill each other and then it would just continue. continue it would just be like oh it's like a cycle and just continues and we just keep chasing each other and I, I, I thought that's I thought that's how the movie was going to end so when I saw poor poor Rob get Bob shot I was a <laughs> Bob Rob Bob <laughs> Bobbert uh, when I saw him get shot I was actually sad I was bit. super sad yeah yep Michael Mann's films have this really cool language that uh, are consistent through all of his movies um, that I feel like start to kind of culminate into something really special. Um, and the, the main one that is really, really, really uh, sort of in your face is how he uses water um, and how he uses the symbol of the ocean as a symbol of freedom. Um, and I feel like uh, there's, a couple of moments in heat uh, early on when we introduced Neil and he goes to his house and his house is on the ocean and he's looking at the ocean. And is, I don't know if you got this in your notes, but um, there's that shot of the gun in the foreground and he's looking out the window and that's based off of Michael Mann's favorite painting, correct? That's correct. Yes. Yes. What painting? And, um, I should know the name of this painting, um, but the paint, when you look at it, um, uh, it's literally that frame. It's a guy standing out in the background looking through a window and there's a gun on the foreground on a table. It's by Alex Colville. It's called Pacific. It was done in 1967. Um, and that reference is like, it's crazy how similar it is. Um, but just to the point of like, man using um, the ocean, like what's cool is you have oh, that wow. scene where you have, yeah. Yeah, it's like the exact shot from the movie. Um, and that's kind of one of the first sort of like subjective like character shots of him in the movie. Um, and then when him and Edie are, their relationship is like on this like breaking point, they're down at the ocean and he's like looking at her and she's not facing the ocean. She's like facing towards the land. And um, when she finally like accepts like, okay, I'm gonna be with you like ride or die. Um, and re-embraces him she faces the ocean and like he looks off to the ocean and the ocean is like the symbol of of freedom and uh, love it or hate it he does a a very similar thing with Miami Vice uh, one of his later movies um, when they go to Cuba that's like the only time that uh, his lead character sort of has any freedom and then my favorite example is in Public Enemies which is a couple years later um, the there's a scene where um, 
John Dillinger and uh, his love are talking about running away and, and leaving it all behind and escaping to freedom. And they're on a beach, um, but it's pitch black at night and there's no lights and you can hear the ocean in the, in the sound mix, but you can't see it. And um, the next scene he gets caught and she gets caught. And then the next scene he dies. So like through this sort of a culmination of the language of, of how he uses this ocean, you like, in public enemies, you see them talking about freedom and you can't see his symbol for freedom, which is the ocean. I fucking love it. I, 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 I that's all I can say. I, I don't know if it's good filmmaking or bad filmmaking or everyone can have their own opinion on it, but it's so cool that he has this language that he's got consistent, even in the insider, um, Russell Crowe's character right before he goes to court and testifies, he like goes to the ocean and stares out at the ocean and then, I'm um, just I'm just trying to think of where it is in Collateral, <laughs> which, is, which is my favorite Michael Mann movie. Collateral is amazing, and there is no freedom, and all those characters are kind of doomed to the concrete jungle. I don't think there's any ocean in Collateral. No, but it is set in L.A., right? It yeah. is in L.A., yeah. yeah. Interesting, interesting. I do like that. That's I never would have picked up on that unless you told me that. Yeah, he has some really interesting motif, returning motifs. Uh, uh, that's the most obvious one. And then is it too much of a stretch that you've already talked about, like, by land and air with, like, the airports and the trains, that there is no depiction of a boat in this movie? Right. There's no boat. There's no... No one goes out to sea. No one No one actually gets out of the circle of... of uh, that they're sort of like trapped in, as Alex said, um, it's sort of a perpetuating uh, worlds and, and there's no end to it. And hmm. yeah, so I, I, I don't like know, that. I'm not, I'm not clear on, on how to describe it, but I feel it like his, his movies are so romantic and um, there is a crazy level of consistency through all of them. Yes. Yeah. One thing I really noticed or like really was impressed by is, like with this movie, this this movie came out like over 25 years ago, right? Um, 95. And even though there's like a few clunky moments with gender and race, which we didn't really talk about, but like um, other than like, like than that kind of stuff, it doesn't really feel dated in any way. Like this movie feels like it could be released today and it would still have an, a great reception and people would still love it. And it feels like it could be set in the 80s, the 90s, or now, like it, I don't know if his other movies are like this, but it, this movie just feels really timeless to me. I totally agree. Like it just, it's a movie that's aged exceptionally well visually, I will say, um, and, and story-wise for the most part, like it's just that classic heist movie and the way that it's shot, the way that, it, the thing that I really like about it um, with the production design in mind is that it's not relevant which to a lot of designers, they might see that as like an insult, but I think that it just blends so well into the narrative that it's not even called upon. And so you're right, like, of course, there's certain technology that they have that would be like, it's probably around the mid nineties when this movie is set in, in the world of the movie, but you could watch it and you could have this movie released in 2021 and not be like, this is an old movie. It doesn't call upon the time or even the location that much. It is really more of like a character piece or a story piece than anything else. And like a world building piece. Totally. I, I completely agree. It's so timeless. And um, I mean, 
the one time it does call upon its brilliant production design is when Pacino's like, you can ball my wife in this, in her ex-husband's postmodern. But you can't tent. take my, watch my television. <laughs> <laughs> but you can't watch my television. <laughs> and he picks up his crappy 95, which is probably like pretty high tech at the time. <laughs> and smashes it. It was like the Bentley of TVs back then. And we look at that and we're like, wow, that thing is a piece of garbage. <laughs> so the production design, I do actually have notes on this that I didn't mention. Um, the production design is by uh, Neil Spisek. And he is known for Benny and June. He also did Face Off. Um, yes. He did the entire um, Raimi Spider-Man series, one, two, and three. Nice. And he also wow. designed a movie that this is a guessing game. Uh, it is the drunkest I've ever been in the theater with Kenrick Block. Do you know what movie it is, Kenrick? Battleship. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> the know. way I know that is because that was also the drunkest I've ever been in a the movie theater. Yeah, you got very drunk and yelled at people. <laughs> oh my god, I hate being drunk at the movie theater. It's I the worst. Love it. Do you love it? <laughs> I love it. I just fall asleep. <laughs> The thing that I, like, now, like, I think I loved it more than I used to, because now, like, one of my best friends, Kayla, and I, pre-pandemic, would just go to the movies on Tuesday for cheap movie night and get hammered and just, like, decide when we got there what movie we wanted to see. Nice. And, like, I'd say, like, there's a 70% rate that we would just, like, walk out halfway through and be like, want to get more beer? <laughs> and <laughs> don't have the patience for this anymore. But yes, seeing Battleship with Kenrick was the drunkest I've ever been in a movie theater before because we were drinking just vodka. Straight vodka. <laughs> just vodka, no chase, just yeah, we well. icebergs and like, I don't know, it was drunk logic at the time. Did not end well. <laughs> I feel like that was the way that film was meant to be seen. <laughs> Have you seen it since? Or I never will. I'll never see it again. <laughs> well, Rihanna's acting debut. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Anyways, continue. Oh God, I'm having so many flashbacks. Um, yeah, okay, well. Um, <laughs> so back to Heat, uh, it was all shot on location. Speaking of, of production um, design, uh, there were zero sets built. Okay, because there's a couple times where I thought that they were in front of a green screen. Yo, Okay. which times were those? With the cityscape in the background, um, and then there was an, and also the ocean looked fake too um, in his apartment. I thought that was maybe a green screen as well, but it was all in location, hey? It's all in location, but you are a fucking genius, Alex. Um, the, actually, the stuff with the ocean is, is real, um, but the stuff with the terrace where they're overlooking the city, um, that was shot on location, but they, mm. they shot the whole movie on 35 millimeter and you can't actually get an exposure where you can see the lights of the city and those uh, faces in that same kind of exposure. So what, what they did, the, um, the cinematographer, Dante Spinotti. Uh, Is it Spinotti or Spinotti? I couldn't tell. Spinotti. <laughs> He's a genius. He's, he did Manhunter. He did... Um, Last of the Mohicans. Uh, Last of the Mohicans, Public Enemies. He's worked with Man a lot before and since. Um, in 95, it was not really like a standard technology, but he convinced Michael Mann that they should throw down some green screens on the terrace. And that's exactly what they did. They did them on location. And so they filmed um, De Niro and um, then they pulled the green screens up 
and pulled the actors out and shot the landscapes of the city at three frames per second because that was the only way that they could get the right exposure to sort of emulate what it would be like to look at the city at night. Um, Whoa, and then okay. they, they matched the two with uh, computers, which was like totally not a standard at that time. And it looks clunky as shit. <laughs> yeah. I think they it, look it, beautiful. <laughs> like they look really interesting, but they don't match the rest of the movie. Totally. And like when it first came, I was like, wow, that's so pretty. And then I was like, I think that that doesn't look real to me. that doesn't look right to me like <laughs> but it is pretty it is nice to look at it just yeah. looks fake it's pretty and it's dreamy and it does not look real and so much of the film is real and sort of grounded in realism there isn't a lot of crazy lighting um so it stands out and I think the only way it's sort of justified is that uh it's a love scene and they're they're kind of falling in love with each other well that the other time that i so alex i don't know if you remember but um before we watched the movie kenrick said to look out for like that one shot that was digital yes i kept texting kenrick being like is this scene is it this scene because i was so like and that was the first time was with with brenneman and um de niro on the terrace um because it looks so out of place compared to the rest of the movie and then I think the other time was when they were in the tunnel going to the airport. Right, was, yeah. And I was wrong on that too. I was wrong. I think I guessed like three or four different shots were wrong <laughs> on all of them. But it's interesting, at least with those two, to find the parallel of like, that's like their like love circle and like their like own little universe. Well, there's that scene where he's wrestling her in like the, in the meadow and like and like it's looking through the the blades of like the wheat kind of things and like it's really like really dreamy and like romantic looking totally. but it's kind of like this i mean he's you know kind of being like physical with her and it's like not a particularly like nice scene um no but it looks pretty but they have they have, <laughs> they have a distinctive style <laughs> Yeah, they have their own kind of like dream, visual dream logic throughout the film and the scene where they're getting away in the car and they drive into the tunnel and the camera's been exposed for them at a night scene and all of a sudden the whole fucking tunnel just goes white mm -hmm. is stunning. It's, it's stunning. So it's really yeah. cool. Um, yeah, and it's, and it's super surreal and, and not grounded like the rest of the movie um, and neither is the terrorist scene. Um, and it took me like a long time to realize that I always was like, there's something weird about that terrorist scene, but it's actually really iconic. It's a scene that people often remember about the movie. And this time through watching it on a Blu-ray, I was like, oh yeah, you can see the edge where they've been keyed out and it's For so sure. obvious, but even like watching it on, on, on a theater projected, it, it doesn't, it wasn't super obvious. It was, it was dreamy and, and not like the rest of the movie. Um, but it's grounded in their subjective person or realities between looking at each other. Um, right. That being said, did you spot any um, digital shots there, Alex? I looked for it and I honestly could not figure out what it was. I know it and haunted I, Brie. Yeah, it I was mean, bothering me. It was bothering me too. Cause I was like, I really just have no idea like it, it bothered me too and then kenrick told me right before it happened so i was just like okay i see it now that i'm really looking at it because there's this like weird camera angle that kenrick will go into or like not camera angle camera movement that is so displaced within the shot geography of the film but like 
I no, there's no way, no way that I could have spotted that on my own. Okay, what was it? I think I saw maybe one or two more this time that I never saw before as well. One really early on when the semi truck drives into the bank car. Mm. Um, and there's a shot from the bank car's POV of this truck just slamming into it, which makes sense. Again, was, it was probably like an action cam of some kind that they were willing to, you know, have smashed. Get afterwards. wrestled around, yeah. Exactly. Um, and the when when um, Neil goes to kill Wayne Grow, um, and he's dressed up in the like um, the like hotel security jacket, and he's like banging on the door. Uh, when Wayne Grow like puts the lock on and then opens the door. Um, Neil kicks the door and for like literally like five frames there's a first person point of view shot of like the gun and the foot like kicking down the door and then him like hitting Wangro in the face with this gun uh, and it's like a, it's almost like a video game shot it's like a first person shot uh, hmm. and it stood out to me so much in theaters I was like that's definitely not shot on the same camera but Watching it now, it looked, and Brie texted me about this, uh, it looked a lot cleaner than it did back then. And I think maybe they like cleaned it up for the restoration of this movie. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I definitely did not clock that. Yeah, if you were to like freeze frame it and go through it, you can see it. Like, it just looks a little bit sharper. And it's also just an out of place shot for the movie because you don't usually get those POV shots. So it stands out as being weird. But if it happened so quickly that I was like, unless, like, if Kendrick hadn't told me, I would have been like, I never saw this shot. You're yeah, because that was a really quick sequence. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole thing's quick. And it's like the fastest shot in that sequence. And it only really, um, I really noticed it in theaters. I'd probably watch the movie like at least five or 10 times before ever noticing it. Um, and it was later when I watched like Collateral and Public Enemies and some of Michael Mann's fully digital movies. And he shot Collateral digitally. That was his first fully digital movie because of the issue on the terrace um, where you can't get an exposure of nighttime LA. And Collateral well all enough. takes place at nighttime. So yeah, it's all in one night. And film, you know, when you try to expose film at night, it just comes out super dark. Like you can't see anything. Whereas right. um, high definition cameras can expose on higher ISOs and um, you can actually shoot at night. Now we know. That's cool now that they found a way around it. I'm in that movie with the great green screen technology. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's super cool. And I think it's really worth like comparing because this kind of feels like man's last like fully film movie. Um, mm. And I, and I think it kind of is because like Ali, he's shooting the night scenes with digital and the day scenes with film because digital does better with low light. Um, and then collateral, he's fully digital. And from that point on, he never shoots film ever again. Um, and you were saying that he was kind of one of the pioneers of like the transition to digital film? Yeah, like when they shot uh, collateral, they shot on a very like um, unproven format and on a basically an experimental camera. And then like David Fincher shot Zodiac on a very uh, experimental camera as well. Um, and it's kind of nuts. Like when you look at the dailies that they captured, like those, those exposures are like so noisy and mm. they don't look good at all. They had to do like all this work to like fix the image and post. Um, but the workflow was, was so much easier for them. And there was advantages to things like shooting at night that, uh, George Lucas was the other big one with Clone Wars, which is a movie that was shot in 1080 
end is sort of like a terrible notoriously notorious yeah. <laughs> It really is. I've There's never no... seen it, oh, no. and I and I don't want to see it. Like I'm fine. Not I feel seeing like that. I feel like there's like a, a like a, a sister podcast in the making that's like, it's like the iconic movies that you've like never seen for a reason. That's an amazing idea, though, because yeah, there are a lot of films that aren't classics that there's like a reason you haven't seen them. Yeah, like they've been told that they're terrible. Um. Yeah. Anyways, back to <laughs> this regular programming. Um, I have one very random question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. If you had to be in one of the three main relationships, Oof. one would you be? In? God. Uh, on, I guess I'm going to go with. I'm going to go with Robert De Niro. <laughs> Me too. Because their love was young. They'll get over it sooner. Yeah. And he's so hot in this movie. Thank you. I felt like I was like, like it would be in a, like I could hear you guys and your disgust <laughs> of me saying this on the podcast. Like, what the fuck? But I'm so glad to hear that everyone thinks he's as, as, as attractive as I do. We are all with you on that one. Okay, thank God. Um, 100%. I would hate to be in the Val Kilmer relationship. That one is just to me. Yeah, I that like, was the worst would one to me. that one. You would choose that one? Why? I don't know what that says about me as a human being, but um, I would choose that one. Um, as, as Val Kilmer or as Ashley Judd? As Ashley Judd, for sure. Um, but there's just something about the scene where she's on the balcony and like he's so happy to see her. He should be dead. He's like partially like paralyzed. He can barely move his face and he just like smiles seeing her. And she can't reciprocate that smile. And he knows. tears are like in her eyes. And then she does the little hand. He knows already. And she does the thing. <sighs> I don't know. I just, I, I want love like that. That's true love. <laughs> that I is a nice it. moment. I, I think a I'm, beautiful moment. But I think I'm thinking like, I find him so like, repulsive in other scenes like yeah how he's, he's just like oh i can't like live without her like she's everything to me and it's like well why don't you just not be such a shitty husband then <laughs> yeah <laughs> precisely precisely my okay so that's a great because uh great follow into my next question is what happens to chris chris is the only one that gets away i know but what happens to him he doesn't well, have his, his wife the or... sun the sun rises and sets with his his wife and she's gone and he can't get to her so i assume his life is horrible but like what becomes of him obviously we know that's the thing but like if you had to guess <laughs> like what what does what what does he do does he get out of california does he become a truck driver does he continue he opens heist? like a blockbuster video in like san francisco <laughs> And uh, yeah, then they get murdered by Netflix like 20 years later. Hmm. I feel like he would just continue be doing the same stuff. Like, mm. yeah, because he didn't get all his money. So he, he didn't get have... all his money. He like he doesn't have his wife or his child anymore. So like, yeah, he can't he doesn't even, really like, have to be. Assets. Yeah, he doesn't really have to you know worry about them anymore. So maybe he would just continue on his path. To, and like eventually die eventually die i, I feel I like that's the gets... only character who doesn't have closure of all of the characters in the film i feel like that's the one who doesn't have closure yeah, yeah i guess the last shot is to him just driving off and he like looks and he gets away from bad. the cops because he has his fake driver's license which he used to make the bomb materials in the beginning of the film yeah um 
And so we know, like, he's not going to get arrested. But then where does he go? I think he does have a weird sense of closure. I mean, I agree with you. He doesn't have any actual closure. But, like, that last shot, um, as Alex said, is just him. He comes to, like, a stoplight. And he's just, it's, like, this extreme close-up of him in the car. And he's just staring off. And you're like, this is a person without purpose. Mm-hmm, totally. Um, so in a way, he does have closure. Like, he's, he is dead. He's alive. But he's not. He has nothing to live for totally that's sad (laughs) okay for some reason i laughed so hard because i know you said that jeremy piven was in this movie and when he showed up in like a doctor's coat i just like burst out laughing the corrupt doctor who gets his shirt taken off of his back by de niro like my my daughter gave me this shirt he's like i don't give a fuck (laughs) give me the shirt he immediately said give me the shirt he's like what he's like give me the shirt and like even before he has any time to like contest (laughs) already taking off his jacket like he's owned by de niro's character (laughs) and like even when he's like how much time does he have to rest like six or seven hours and he's like that's it he's like yeah he's like okay well okay i wonder what that relationship is i was saying to kenrick that michael mann has penned uh prequel to heat uh in really? novel form that he finished during the pandemic and who oh. knows if it's going to come out as a novel or a film but we're going to learn a more prequel. about these yeah so like where all these characters maybe came from i would assume it would follow de niro's like i'd say like his first crime that put him not first crime the crime that put him in jail um and how because he already knew all those people like kilmer and size war and stuff before that it was just like a return to form um but I think yeah that that's was... the most interesting character like character to do that about i think yeah yeah he's he's the soul of the movie and when he first said novel i was like what and then i was like okay i, I kind of get it because i don't think man is gonna try to do like an irishman thing and he's not going to recast them either so the only medium where that makes sense is a novel and also de niro and like i i know that they powered through i know they powered through the irishman and like good for them but like they're like i don't know if how much how many more good years they have left they're doing like action movies (laughs) yeah (laughs) or ones that we would sell like buy into especially like because it would be like a young De Niro. I think they would just have to recast it. They'd have to at this point. Yeah, and, and I think in some weird way, like man's not willing to, to recast. So I think he went to the novel form, just kind of a, get around all those issues. Maybe. Right. There was something I read on the Wikipedia page that like they had made um, a Heat video game, I believe to be released in 2003. And they had a verbal confirmation from Michael Mann saying that they could do it. But then when it came to like the legalities of everything of getting the actual rights, it was impossible to do so. So they created most of the game and then it was never to be released because they never got the rights to the film itself. And so there was like this like lost heat game, I guess for like PS three, I would assume if it's 2003, I know you would play that game, Kenrick. (laughs) I have played that game and it's called Grand Theft Auto 5. Um, (laughs) Like you said earlier. Um, And it's actually a really interesting point of um, they, because the, you know, the iconic uh, bank robbery heist sequence is like stunning. Um, Mm -hmm. And the soundtrack is amazing when they first go into the bank. But then during the entire shootout, there is no music. Um, And the sound design is, I think, some of the best sound design um, in any film. Um, 
and what's kind of interesting is they actually they had a really rushed um for such a long shoot because i think i believe it was a 107 day shoot they had a really rushed post sequence because they were trying to make a december release and uh i saw a man talking about how they had actually re-recorded all the gunshots and he didn't like any of them and they ended up throwing all of their like re-recorded gunshots out and ended up using a lot of the actual audio that was recorded on the location because the gunshots were like echoing down these like boulevards of right. of buildings and I think that is something that's like harrowing and kind of shocking about the movie is the sound design and particularly in that sequence because you are left with nothing but the echoes of these these guns it's brutal it's like relentless and you can't really it's like very uncompromising like you can't really like get away from the like incredible noise like i never heard gunshots sound that like that in a in a movie before um i just want to know what you guys' favorite scenes are in the movie Ooh. the last i would say the last scene is my favorite that's exactly what i was gonna say i have a lot it, of runner, runner-ups but like i love the i love both the high scene and when they take over the truck like they're such good action scenes and they're like put you in the mood for that part of the movie um, but the last scene is like a, it's like a perfect last scene for a movie, in my opinion. I completely agree. I love all three of those scenes so much. Another scene, okay, I know we talked about this scene earlier about like the problems with it, but I would say like a scene I can't really get out of my head, and I feel like it was a turning point for me in the movie, is the Natalie Portman scene in the bathtub, and not because of what like the the sort of shocking violence of it but the way that al pacino's character reacts his acting in that moment and i feel like i learned something about that character in that moment because i was like okay this is somebody who really thrives under pressure and like he might not be there for the good times and like he might not be there every day but like he's there he's there and like he'll completely spring into action to protect you know the people he loves and i i feel like that scene also really like stuck out to me like when he's in the hospital and everything and he's even though I was kind of like making fun of his acting earlier like I feel like in that scene he redeems himself it's it's an insanely harrowing scene totally what about you Ken um I I think you both nailed it the finale is is unparalleled um one scene that always kind of I forget about and surprises me is the scene when they go to uh break into the I don't even know what they're breaking into but like the metal place Mm -hmm. um and just how they use like there's a scene where De Niro's like standing on the street and then he backs into the shadow and it goes to the thermal camera and then it's like the two are like looking into the camera back and forth like shot reverse shot that gives me chills every time but the finale is the best part I I also do really love the scene where they get coffee the diner scene yeah the diner scene is really really like it's just like it's just two amazing actors sitting talking to each other and they both know what the other one wants from each other and it's just like a really good i don't know like it's intense but also just like really interesting to watch at the same time because they're just both such great actors totally and like al pacino has much more of a motive than de niro does but de niro trusts him himself as long with along with pacino's character enough to know that nothing's going to happen and so it's like a moment where they both get to be free and like actually talk to each other which i think is really interesting yeah Yeah, it's like the first the first like sense we get of like this mutual understanding that they have and how connected Mm -hmm. they are to each other 
mm-hmm. which c- kind of comes back around at the end when they're holding hands. <laughs> they have a love for each other. They know each other they really well. They're the only two that can really understand what the others are going through. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, Michael Mann, you've done it again. <laughs> man, man. <laughs> All right, we have our, oh, our for... final question, Bree. You got okay. one, one last for us. Oh, she's got one. You're, you're, got not, one. you're not off the hook yet, Alex. Okay, so the final question is, why do you think this movie was not nominated for any Oscars? Mm. Especially in performance. That's the one that gets me the most. It's kind of surprising because, like, aren't Pacino and De Niro, like, you'd think that, like, they're kind of... I mean, they've both won Oscars before, right? Yes. Yes. Um, I, but I don't know. Like, I feel like the Oscars... They like a certain kind of movie and that's They're not dumb. yeah yeah that's not like that movie doesn't really fit into what the oscars typically likes to give awards to i mean the one argument i was reading a lot of like blogs about this today because i was like why hasn't it why didn't it get nominated for any oscars and the one argument against that statement because that's how i thought too is the departed got a ton of nominations and it's not the same movie but it's the same kind of movie with the same kind of stacked cast with the same kind of you know huge director behind it um but scorsese is like a darling of like the industry whereas i don't think like michael mann is quite on like obviously he's a very respected successful director but he's not scorsese like scorsese is like in and to your point earlier uh casino was the same year so i feel like casino stole oh that's why so it's scorsese's fault yeah, because Scorsese releases something like every year, so he's gonna like <laughs> sweep that category every year. What a jerk! <sighs> this was really fun, you guys. Thank you great. so much for joining us on the podcast. Love you so much. So good to see both of your faces. I miss you both. Love you guys. Love you guys. Love you guys.